All right, well, welcome everyone to a very special episode of Relay Theology. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined here with my co-hosts Ben Watkins and Ben Bavar. And we have two very special guests today, and uh, we're going to introduce them now. So first we have with us Dr. Josh Rasmussen. And uh, Josh, do you want to just maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? Just let our uh, listeners know. Um, I think you're pretty well known, but uh, I like philosophy. I like mint chocolate chip ice cream. Nice. Um, Basketball is my favorite sport. And I happen to be married to the most beautiful woman in the world, objectively. You know, just in case you were wondering about objective aesthetics. <laughs> so, yeah, and, I, and at my work focuses on sort of trying to understand the sort of the, the foundations of things as, as deeply as I can. Um, that's what I like to do. And I like to do it in a spirit of collaboration um, where people with different views can come together and work together. So that's kind of my style. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um about you, by the way. So, okay. um, great. So, uh, and then we also have with us Logos. Uh, Logos, do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and um, your interests and your part of this discussion? Sure. Uh, it's going to be hard following up with that. Dr. Josh Rasmussen, followed up by some random guy on the internet that makes YouTube comments. Um, I am not a trained philosopher. I have a graduate degree in math, a graduate degree in econ, some experience in statistics. And I've been studying philosophy as a hobby since, well, off and on for a while, but seriously since around 2015, 2016, hanging out with a friend. And my friend goes, so Logos, you're not a Christian. I want to try to convert you. Let's let's read through the Blackwell Companion together because you're a math guy. You like analytic arguments. And so I said, sure, sounds like fun. And um, around the same time, I was talking with some people in another sphere of the internet. And they're like, hey, you ever heard of Thomism and Ed Fezzer? I'm like, no. And so I'm like, reading the Blackwell Companion while reading Ed Fezzer like simultaneously. And I just got kind of like sucked in from there. Then I started following people on YouTube, Capturing Christianity and, and people like that. Um, I was even on the Capturing Christianity Facebook group for a while where I had some pretty fun interactions with uh, Josh, who is probably one of my favorite philosophers ever, more so than his written work. I just love the way that he interacts with people, talks to people, and I like the way he thinks. I think one of my favorite articles ever written was um, Josh's article on uh, cosmological arguments where he goes over a bunch of different causal principles. And he talks about Proust's argument and how like, you know, you have all these contingent facts, but if God's choice is a contingent fact, you have like one part of the BCCF explaining the whole of BCCF. Anyway, that meta way of looking at the argument, which is like tickled the pink because it's how I like look at the arguments myself. And so when real theology is just like, hey, how do you feel about hanging out with Josh Rasmussen? I'm just like, what? I was just like fanboying all over the place. Um, well, you're very kind. If, if I could just add in here, um, I remember when, when I was still in graduate school emailing Alex Proust about his argument with Gail and asking him about these circularity worries. And we went back and forth a few times, you know, and then there was just a, a, a circularity worry that he said, yeah, he hadn't considered that before. And I was, of course, just glowing because I thought, well, this is this is wonderful. You know, we need to expose this and get this out there. Absolutely. So, this is deep in the weeds of my my thinking about this. And that's cool that we interacted. Um, I, I uh, didn't even remember that. So I'm it's glad I, I, used, I, I used my real name on uh, on Cameron's Facebook and I've gone kind of anonymous since then. Okay. Um, but yeah. Awesome. So that's about me. I too love mint chocolate. I do not have a beautiful wife, sadly. So I'm jealous in one more regard for Rasmussen in there. Um, and another thing to note too is I'm actually not like an atheist. So it's going to be interesting me, you know, bringing up the atheistic side and trying to defend things that way. I actually, you know, very much lean theist. I just happen to be skeptical of a lot of apologetics arguments because I think there are barriers in how they handle things, which 
adds friction to the conversation. And so on my recent blog posts, I've been focusing on kind of how to remove some of these frictions and, and lawyer speaking things from these arguments to make them more accessible and to make people feel like uh, there's consistent rules being played by so they can actually interact with the conversation. Uh, I guess that's my overall goal. So uh, you're, a, you're a fellow math guy, so that's awesome. I already like you a lot. Uh, we'll have to maybe chat sometime about math. I think math, uh, mathematicians tend to make good philosophers. Um, that's my, my opinion, but uh, great. So I'm going to hand it over to uh, Ben B here uh, for a moment, and then we'll um, get the uh, conversation started. All right. Well, we're here to talk about contingency arguments, otherwise known as Leibnizian cosmological arguments. So, Professor Rasmussen, could you go through the history of this family of arguments? It's obviously been around for quite a while, as long as we've had Leibniz's work, of course. These arguments are often thought to constitute powerful evidence for God. But in recent years, some uh, leading atheistic philosophers have raised objections. And in response to these objections, even more sophisticated versions of the argument have been developed, such as your own. So could you walk us through that evolution of the argument, Professor Rasmussen? Yeah, just to give kind of a bird's eye overview as I sort of see the history. I mean, it's sort of interesting to me that like from the beginning of recorded history, you have human beings wondering, like, how are we here? Like, how is anything here? You know, you, you have the earliest uh, forms of cosmological arguments in the writings of Plato, for example, and Aristotle. And then these arguments continue to be sort of developed and they splinter into different forms. And so we have Leibniz developing a kind of Leibnizian form. Um, but even before kind of tapping on that, just to give maybe even a bigger kind of structural display of the argument, this kind of an argument, I like to divide it. Um, I sent you guys uh, a chapter that I, I wrote last year that I think it's out by now, but um, it talks about the sort of different kinds of cosmological arguments. And I know that sometimes people like to classify them in terms of the Leibnizian, the Thomist, and the Kalam argument. Those are like the big three. But I actually think that there's more than just those three. And that if you can really see what the root structure is that gives life to all the different arguments, you, you might be able to sort of see new arguments or new pathways that are maybe more convincing or, or get away from certain problems of other ones. Um, perhaps arguments that haven't even been discovered yet. But the way that I think about the big structure is that there's kind of two stages to the argument. The first stage is seeking to understand if reality has a kind of bottom layer or a fundamental kind of thing from which mm -hmm. everything else comes. It could be a quantum field. It could be um, pro, you know, uh, standard uh, particles, um, but just some, something that doesn't depend on anything prior. It's sort of the ultimate. That's kind of the first stage. And then the second stage seeks to identify if there is this foundational thing, like what it is. And I think of that as kind of like the big structure. And then this leads into different versions of the argument. So for example, um, arguments will appeal to a kind of principle of causation or explanation or dependence or some kind of, I call it a linking principle that gets you from things of one kind to sort of like a foundational thing of those things of that kind. So for example, the Kalam cosmological argument, you could think of that as focused on the kinds of things that begin. So things that begin to exist, those things have some cause. And a kind of popular version of this is if you trace the causes back to a first cause, then that first cause doesn't begin to exist because 
if it did, then it would have to have a cause, but it's the first cause. So it's something that doesn't begin to exist. So it counts as a kind of foundation of the things that begin. That's like one example of filling in that general structure, right? Um, and I think it is really, really helpful to sort of think of the general structure first so that you can even see kind of why is there a Kalam argument? Like, why is there a Thomistic argument? Why is there a Leibnizian argument? Now, coming into the Leibnizian argument, what I like about the Leibnizian argument is that it subtracts a lot of assumptions that are in the Kalam argument. So one of the assumptions in the Kalam argument, uh, at least on, on a standard formulation of it, is that there's sort of a first thing that began. And that first thing that began has a cause, and then that cause didn't begin. Whereas the Leibnizian argument will leave open the age of reality, um, how many things are causally connected. There could be infinitely many things. And it, now, now some people think that, well, maybe one infinite regress is possible, but there's another kind of infinite regress that has to um, come to an end. But what a lot of people don't realize is actually the Leibnizian argument in its general form could allow infinitely many infinite regresses. You could have an infinite re horizontal regress, an infinite vertical regress, every dimension, infinitely many dimensions of regresses. But this argument, the seed of this argument is seeking an explanation of things. And one thing I have in my notes here that I think will facilitate our, our conversation is about a value, I think, of even pulling principles out of the argument where these principles can act like tools for anybody seeking to understand the nature of, of reality. And one of these principles is this principle of explanation um, in Leibniz's argument. And in the development, you know, speaking of the history of the development of the argument, there have been iterations of this principle, uh, weaker versions of the principle. So we don't have to say that like everything that exists or everything that is contingent has an explanation. Right. That's very controversial. Yeah. We might have something more modest, like um, other things being equal, contingent things possibly have an explanation, you know, and there's versions of the argument that way. And this has led into the contemporary scene where you have philosophers, and this is really at the edge of human inquiry. I mean, human beings collectively have been working on these things and unpacking insights together to an edge point where there's a lot of interesting development and discussion. Um, and at the edge of human inquiry is a discussion about these principles of explanation and then what they might reveal about reality. Um, and that's a very fascinating thing to me. There's, if I could just add one more thing here, a philosopher, Stephen Mateson, he sent me a book uh, that he had been working on. It's come out now where he uses the, this principle of sufficient reason or principle of explanation. And he takes a strong form of it uh, as a tool for filling out his worldview. Now he doesn't arrive at theism. In fact, he, he's an atheist, but this is great because it shows that there can be a tool that you can use that can help you fill out your worldview even if that tool might be used in certain uh, popular level theistic arguments. Because I think what happens sometimes is if you have a principle that's in a theistic argument, and maybe you don't think that argument works, you might not see the value of the tool itself. And what Stephen Mateson does is he illustrates how we can use this tool to investigate reality. Um, and so, and we can talk more about that, but I would say just from a general historical sketch, big picture, bird's eye, we have, like I said, the seeds of arguments from so the causal explanatory structure of the world going all the way back to human beings talking about these things. And then that seed turning into splitting into different strategies for linking the observations to sort of an original reality and then trying to identify that, that, that reality's nature. 
So I would say right now where we're at is um, maybe some progress on, it seems like there's a general consensus, not universal, but general consensus that there is some kind of foundational layer. Um, and then there's a lot of talk now on the identification of that foundational layer. Real quick, uh, Josh, is there any particular way we should be understanding explanation in this context? Um, like, is that just synonymous with kind of a causal history of some kind, or is this, um, or does it matter what kind of theory of explanation we're talking about? Uh, I, generally, you could think of it, I think, minimally as sort of removing mystery to some degree. Um, you know, so like if you see the clouds move across the sky and you're like wondering, why do they move across the sky? And there's some sort of theory that gives a deeper explanation. It sort of removes some mystery or helps illuminate why, sort of answers that why question. But I think that the best forms of the argument today um, work with that kind of minimal notion and they don't fill in other details like that. It has to remove mystery in a way that entails or forces or determines the explanandum. Um, but just that to some degree, there's some explanation, even, even if it's not 100% sufficient to explain every question. Yeah. Okay, so I want to ask Logos now. So there's the big question that kind of looms behind all these arguments from contingency. Um, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, why is there anything at all? Why this something instead of something else? And cosmological arguments are one attempt to answer these questions. And so the the argument generally goes um, from contingency that um, the universe must have an explanation because the universe is contingent or you know could have failed to exist. Um, and it must have an explanation that is not merely another contingent thing, but rather something necessary. Um, and even if we were to concede the universe has always existed, it must still depend on something necessary. And then as... Uh, Dr. Resmussen pointed out, you know, the second stage of the argument is to say that this necessary thing is, you know, a perfect being, such as God. Um, how do you see the evolution of these arguments evolving over time, and how do you approach these types of questions and arguments? Awesome. Um, okay. Yeah, the way you presented that question, I think, shows a lot of the complexity here because there's like five or six different threads all going on in these arguments. They're all very, very important. So the first thing is what Ryan asked actually is what is an explanation? So one of the very first pitfalls that Leibniz fell into is he thought that the principle of sufficient reason was some kind of you know implicating or entailing explanation. And that kind of gets you into trouble. As Sobel and other people pointed out, um, if you have a necessary thing, God or something else, that's actually an entailing explanation for everything else, everything else ends up being necessary. But what the argument hinges on is that things are contingent. But if they're necessary, they're not contingent. So it's that whole Bane meme, right? In the end, victory has defeated you, right? If we take you know, Leibniz's argument to the end, it ends up undercutting its own premise. So that's bad. So we had to, we had to you know, remove that. Uh, and this showed up prominently, I think, in Proust's Blackwell Companion paper when he was talking about Van Inwagen's argument. And Proust makes a really good point of saying that, you know, we don't have to think that explanations entail the things that they are trying to explain. And if they did, then yes, modal collapse is a big problem. Uh, 
And that has to say that it's not just atheists that have been pushing back against this argument, but theists as well. Rasmussen has made some contributions which have changed things from how it was when Proust wrote his article to uh, how it is now. Uh, Ian Wagon has had some things to say and, and so on. So there's been a lot, of, a lot of push from everybody to change the dynamics of the argument. Um, the other thread would be the scope. So what kinds of things are under the scope of the PSR? And this is especially relevant to what Rasmussen wrote in his article. Do we think that all contingent facts listed as propositions are the kinds of things that need explaining? Um, if we do, then we might have an issue, because if one wants to say that God freely chooses to do something which triggers the rest of the, the contingent facts, that triggers the cycle, God's choosing itself is a contingent proposition, which needs an explanation. But it's a free choice, and so that gets thorny with issues of free will. Uh, what does it mean to say that God's contingent choice needs to be explained? Well, is it explained circularly? If it is, then what other contingent things can be explained circularly? We don't want that, because otherwise the, the contingent universe might be circularly explainable and you know we can't be violating our own rules there um so what what has been done is in necessary existence as we all know because i think we all read and love the book uh the first version of the argument talks about kind of a plurality a bottom-up plurality not a top-down set rasmussen really loves uh bottom-up pluralities so as to avoid self-reference problems in sets. I watched your video with Joe. It was really good. Um, and so it's kind of like a bottom-up plur bottom plurality. We see this thing, and we see this thing, we see those things, right? Here's all these concrete contingent things. Let's explain those and leave the really technical BCCF proposition stuff out of it, because that can be kind of thorny. And so another way the arguments evolved is the scope has been quite a bit narrowed into talking about you know concrete things, this thing, that thing, things we can touch and feel and talk about, rather than abstract entities that can kind of you know, drag more than we bargained for into the argument. So that's been another huge thing. So um, explanation has been lightened. The scope has been much narrowed. And what else has really changed? I think the big, the big frontier of the argument now is modal symmetry. Um, I was watching some of Mal Pass's discussion on the Thought Adventure podcast to see what he had to say. And there are some interesting nuggets he has in there. But I think a lot of the meat of where he ends up near the end of it is kind of like an oppy move where he says, okay, maybe maybe foundational, maybe the category of contingent things itself is just some necessary category in the sense that necessarily some contingent thing or things have to exist, which ones are kind of contingent and brute. And so, okay, so theism has some necessary thing and maybe for the sake of argument, oppy or um, malpass will have some contingent thing at their root. What do they look like? So what are the necessary things? What are the brute things? Line them up, and the, the meta seems to be about comparing uh, model simplicities, basically. And that seems to be where one version of the discussion is kind of like battle lines are drawn. It's let's just line things up and see whose model simplest. Um, the, other, the other interesting place I think the discussion is ending up is looking at even if you don't have entailing explanations, even if you only have just like minimally clarifying ones or partial explanations, this is something that Malpass talked about and I strongly agree with. Um, you have this idea that partial explanations seem to have some uncaptured element in there. There's some bruteness. There's, some, there's something left unexplained in a partial explanation. You don't have the whole story. You have some minimally clarifying part. And... If you appeal to like some foundational necessary thing there, there, there's a little bit of tension there because you want to have some stuff removed from the partial explanation, but you're trying to go, go to a foundation. And so this this causes um, Malpass to say that you know potentially 
all concrete things are contingent and or are just contingently explained. And so looking at the relationship, not by the definition of explanation, but just through causal connections, not even causal connections, like ideological ones between things and the things that do the explaining might lead one to think that contingent things are explained by contingent things or explained by contingent things and so on. And if you had a necessity anywhere down the line, you might end up getting some problems. And so that's another battle line that's kind of been drawn, giving you another way to kind of look at the argument. In brief, um, to talk about the why is there something rather than nothing question, because this is what um, the the person I talked to really wanted me to talk about a little bit. Um, how are ways you could you know address that question? This goes all the way back at least to like the uh, the Russell uh, Copleston debate when you know Copleston kind of asked Russell that question, and and Russell says, well, you know we don't know what nothing is, right? We've never seen a nothing. Everything we've observed is a something. And so do we even know? Is it in our purview to know that there could be this vacuum of pure nothingness to compare something to? Uh, maybe reality is such that there is something and that is all. This is another way of owing to the, the idea that concrete things as a category might be a necessary thing as um, Malpass pointed to, but it's, it's getting at it more directly. It's just saying... Um, you know, there, there, there just can't be a nothing. The question might just be silly. Um, another strategy of of talking about this is to point out that, well, even on the theistic view, gods are something. And so theists seem to assume there's always something in the form of God. So why can't other people assume there's always something in the form of something else? Maybe if not the universe, something foundation foundational to the universe. To, to Rasmussen's credit, he said, you know, quantum fields or something that generate universes. There could be a wide variety of stuff. Um, and the last way of looking at it might be um, the Pandora's box thing. I, I've heard this brought up in in response to the Kalam. In fact, I saw a giant YouTube thread on it that was fun to engage in with their real atheology. Uh, they're talking about the Kalam, and there's an article by a philosopher. I forget which one. It might have been Mackie. It might have been Oppie. It escapes me. But the idea is that if you have a true vacuum of nothing, you've got no rules, you've got no causal principles, you've got no limitations, right? Nothing is the very definition of an, of an unlimited thing. And so who knows what can pop out of a true vacuum of nothing when you've got no causal regulations on anything at all? Uh, and that might be, might be another interesting way of looking at you know answering that question. And all these answers in some way, shape, or form are kind of glib. You know, maybe nothing's a Pandora's box. Maybe there's something in that's all. They show up also in the more academic treatments of the arguments too. But I just figured I'd take a slight aside to talk about those because I was asked to. Thank you so much for laying all that out, Dr. Rasmussen. Did you want to say anything? Kind of, did you want to add anything to that, or did we want to kind of move on to the meat of uh, y'all's arguments or disagreements? Uh, I think just briefly, I really love that summary. That's a nice lay of the land. I was thinking what I like about it also is that it captures not just the sort of edges of the academic discussion, but also the sort of popular uh, discussion in the YouTube and, and uh, Twitter and Facebook land, which is wonderful to even just see these two lands. And I, and I love how you were capturing a lot of the main points that are being discussed these days in those lands. Um, the only other thing I was going to add here, and this will probably lead us into the discussion, um, is just in terms of scope. So one thing that I, I do like about a certain version of a Leibnizian argument is to think about just a simple seed that does apply to everything. Okay, And the simple seed is just explain things as far as you can. <laughs> that applies to everything. If you can explain it, explain it. Now, you start restricting the scope once you think that, well, you can't explain this. 
And right away, you're going to get a kind of parity between, let's say, the theist and the naturalist with respect to answering the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Because everybody's going to have something that is the, the ultimate something. And um, uh, well, actually, that's probably too strong. That one could debate that, right? Maybe there is no ultimate something. But if there is, then the real question is not, why does that thing exist? But how can it exist without a further explanation? Or in other words, what's the best kind of theory that will account for there being something that doesn't have a further explanation? And so, um, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to add to that. Awesome. So um, one area of disagreement where I thought y'all might um, it might be a good place to pick up uh, a discussion is the, this notion of counterfactual versus metaphysical contingency. I don't, I don't think there's much of a disagreement here. This is more of like a vocabulary discussion with some follow-up questions to kind of lead us in. Um, so one thing that's kind of murky about contingency arguments is that these, these, there are these two parallel concepts that kind of weave into each other, but they can also split apart. And that's just like contrastive or counterfactual contingency, like possibly something could have been some other way. And there's like metaphysical contingency where something is contingent in a sense of dependence on something else. And Rasmussen did a really good job of highlighting both in his Philo Nilo discussion. And this came from uh, Contemporary Arguments in Natural Theology. This was his article on there that I got most of my latest inspiration from. Um, so when you're talking about, uh, so, the situation is suppose you're in a forest. Two, two philosophers are walking through a forest. You've got Philo and Nihilo. And, and uh, Nihilo is trying to basically take up the Humean defense. So the Humean defense against the contingency argument, which Malpass really likes, is, well, what if I can explain a tree in this forest in terms of a previous tree that birthed that tree? Okay, where'd that previous tree come from? Why is that here? Well, it was birthed by another previous tree. And you just go on ad infinitum and say, well, look, if every tree can be explained by the previous tree that birthed that tree, what else needs to be explained? We've explained all the trees at every moment in time, so what's missing? Um, and there's two senses in which things might be left unexplained, and both of those senses get at the heart of these different kinds of contingency that will kind of implicitly or explicitly play in the argument. So the counterfactual contingency is just something like, well, okay, we know that at every point in our past there might have been a tree, but what if at this exact same plot of land there was a turtle? And where'd that turtle come from? Well, it was birthed by another turtle, which was birthed by another turtle and so on. So instead of there always having been trees, possibly, conceivably, there could have always been turtles at this exact same spot we're standing in. So why do we have all these trees instead of turtles? If we had these turtles, I could give like a, a mechanical historical account of the turtles just as you could for the trees. And so in some sense, the history isn't doing all the work you want it to do here. Something's gone wrong. Um, so that's the that's the, kind of like the counterfactual idea of contingency. Something else could have been. So why this thing? And at the very very end of the dialogue, um, they're sitting there arguing about this 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 forest and why this forest is here. Then Rasmussen cheekily just goes, and out of the sky suddenly another forest appears. And they all scream and run away. The end or something like that, right? Yes, and it was an infinite forest, by the way. It uh, was infinite forest. Yes, I don't know if I specified that, but that's it how was, I was yes. imagining it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, and so it's like this. This forest just appears in the sky. This infinite forest just poof. There it is, and they all scream and run away. So this idea is, um, there's some causal reality. Like even if there's an infinite number of trees here, there's a there's a causal reality that spawns trees over an infinite amount of time, and 
there's some there's some cause like trees grow in the ground like let's just start with that right trees go in the ground and so we expect trees to be here because they're a ground here trees don't just pop up in the sky and so there's there's this idea of of metaphysical contingency in the sense of dependence trees depend on the ground to grow they depend on nutrients they depend on seeds from other trees they depend on all these other things and so this idea that this forest just pops up in the sky out of nowhere isn't quite the counterfactual worry of a different history is taking it on board instead. It's this worry of, well, if these trees just poofed into existence here, like if, if history was just like this, why couldn't these trees just pop into being anywhere, right? If, if we're undercutting the, the dependence for the trees on these things to be trees, they could just kind of grow in the sky and do, do all kinds of crazy, crazy things. And so... I think I think Rasmussen and I agree on those two definitions of of causal contingency or dependence contingency versus counterfactual contingency. Am I right about that? Yeah, that, that's a fair distinction. Yeah, I see. So you and Professor Rasmussen have already agreed upon definitions of the terms counterfactual and metaphysical contingency. You just wanted to make sure we're all clear on that distinction before we move on to your questions for Professor Rasmussen. Yeah, so I think you already kind of mentioned one, and the big one being God's free will. So um, if we have certain types of explanations and we're committed to certain views, does this undermine God's free will? Because it's seen, and this could be a worry for some models of God. You know, some models of God have, um, you know, God's act of creation being something contingent, something that's, you know, the product of his free, free choice. He could have created nothing or some other universe. Um, do you think that this might be an area where there's disagreement? Yeah. So the two, I think the two threads I want to follow here, tracking them individually. Um, I, I split these topics up kind of to help track the threads a bit because it's going to be a complicated conversation. Uh, when worrying about the counterfactual issues, I think that's where God's free will and brute facts are going to take center stage. And then when worrying about the dependence of of the forest on the ground and, and other causal realities, I think that's where the questions about things being independent and unlimited are going to to come into play. So the follow up question I had say for the the, the trees growing out of the sky is, you know, if if the cause of the trees is a fundamentally independent and unlimited thing, um, it doesn't seem to me to have limits about where trees grow and how they grow. If the cause of the forest is truly an unlimited independent thing, why couldn't trees just grow in the sky suddenly because it, it chose to do it? Um, that's the nature of that follow-up question. And then in the counterfactual one, that's where we're going to get into God's free will and brute facts. We could actually think of those two questions as targeting the two stages of the argument. So the first stage being some argument for some kind of foundational reality, and then the second stage being the sort of identification stage of that of that foundation, right? And I, I think this will be interesting to explore those because in the first stage, just to kind of frame what I think is at stake here, is I have this one particular argument in that article that you're citing that I, I um where I use this principle of external explanation. So I think the principle is something like, if, if an external explanation is, is possible, then other things being equal, there is an external explanation. I think I, I might even wanna put that more modestly, like unless you have some reason to think an external explanation is impossible, then you have at least some default reason to think that there is some external explanation. And then I give some motivations for that principle from reason and experience and irrelevant differences. Um, and then the context of the forest, and, and it'll be interesting, um, Logos, to see 
what um, how the conversation goes about the forest. But the way that I'm thinking of the the forest example coming in here is it's helping to sort of clarify what's at stake if you think there is an infinite regress of things. And I'm thinking that if there's an infinite regress, that infinite regress doesn't automatically remove the sort of call for an external explanation. And that's why I even had the example of a, of a forest appearing in the sky. Um, that's sort of a weird example because, you know, trees grow in the ground or whatever. But if you could imagine maybe instead of a forest, turtles coming from other turtles in a super task uh, speed so that in finite time you have an infinite uh, sequence of turtles coming from turtles. My thought is that that would still sort of call for an external explanation, at least other things being equal. The mere infinitude of, of the causal links. Uh, and, and even if then you spread the causal links out, that spreading out um, across time wouldn't thereby remove the call for an external explanation. I think it's maybe a bit unfortunate that I use the language of contrastive explanation because in asking, you know, like, well, why is there a forest, you know, rather than snakes or nothing at all, then it might sort of invite the reader to think that the kind of explanation that needs to be there has to be sort of a contrastive one that explains this rather than that. Um, but I, I don't want to say that on my minimal notion of explanation. All I want to say is that there's some reason to expect some external explanation of an infinite stack of things, other things being equal. So those are just clarifications. And then I, I love your questions, Logos, because they're going to, I think, lead us into those two stages, the foundation stage and the identification stage. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad he, I'm glad you made that clarification about contrastive things, because that was one of the big things that I was confused by as I was puzzling through it and typing up my blog and reading the article is uh, Proust made a very, very big point in his article to note that explanations, you know, shouldn't have to be contrastive. It's actually very, very important if you want to say that you have libertarian free will or God exercises free will. If explanations are contrastive, then you run into all sorts of issues. Why did God choose A over B? Well, unless you can answer that in a fully contrastive sense to you know, fully explain why he must have chosen A, we have a problem. But if you can do it, you get necessitarianism, right? So you really do want to uh, avoid yes. the contrastive element. But I was seeing that very, very heavily in the dialogue, and I'm like, wait a minute. Proust is – sorry, Rasmussen is leaning really, really heavily into this, this, this contrastive bit. And yeah, and, and by the way, yeah. you know, and, and not even just for you know, theism, but I mean like if you think the quantum field – can act indeterministically. Absolutely. Then yeah. you want to allow for that too. So we can even open it up. Like for any worldview seeker who pulls the principles out of the arguments and just probing reality, I think we want to have explanations that don't determine their effects. And it's an open question, it's an open project whether contrastive explanations are necessitating, whether they they do uh, determine their effects. But I'm just going to grant for sake of argument here that that they do, and I'm not going to require a contrastic. Uh, contrastive explanation. Interesting. So, so one of the follow-up questions I had um, about the the I guess the the contrastive part in the way that um, let me put it this way. So you, you have the necessary being. You have like the the conglomeration like capital N, and you have this N being kind of like independent, unlimited, kind of very very abstract, and it's kind of the cause of reality. Now. This is something I want to pick your brain about. So in debating the fine-tuning argument, um, there's there's kind of a, a debate going on about what if the the 
the laws of the universe or the, the foundations of the universe were necessary. And they just kind of necessarily produce this thing for fine-tuning life. And I've heard Oppie argue with Barnes about this on a Facebook chat, kind of, and in some other contexts. And the way Oppie sees it, it's kind of like once you've kind of like set your necessity, right? You've got base. These things had to be the way they are. I've kind of like hit the foundation. This is it. There's no appealing to something else. Barnes doesn't really like that so much. He goes, well, really, Oppie? That's kind of interesting, right? Out of all the ways we could have had a foundational reality with these physical laws, we just so happen to have this necessary foundational reality with these laws that allows for life. How, how convenient is that? Uh, what, what do you make of this kind of disagreement about the nature of necessity? I love your, your strategy here. You're using theists against theists. I, I think I think you love consistencies is what I feel like is a golden value you have, which is probably why your name, your screen name here is Logos. Because, you know, in stage one, you're you're pointing out something that a theist Proust is saying that seemed to maybe go against something in my argument if I require contrastic contrastive explanation. So you're looking for consistency there, which is beautiful. And then now you're looking for consistency in the identification stage where you're bringing um, Barnes in and he's making an argument, you know, against Oppie, but then his argument maybe goes against something I might want to say in the identification. At least that, you know, at least it raises the question. And, and I just, I'm kind of identifying here that, that sort of technique, which I really uh, appreciate. Um, I think what I want to say there is that I have in my notes that in seeking to identify the nature of fundamental reality, I think it can be helpful to divide between two different projects. So one project is a sort of clearing away of attributes that would not be um, sort of relevantly different from dependent attributes. So like maybe being a turtle. Um, I don't expect that fundamental reality would be a turtle because in my experience, I, th I think both reason and experience <laughs> suggest that turtles would have some further explanation. Um, and so we sort of maybe clear away some things are like, it's fundamentally blue. I don't think that that's going to be the best account of fundamental reality. We clear that away. But once we've cleared it away, we've sort of emptied it of content. Then there is this kind of worry that this, um, this box worry, uh, where anything can come out of this infinite unlimited box. And now you sort of lose, you lose all predictive ability. And especially if you want to use your theory to predict, let's say, the fine-tuning or something like this, and you just subtract out all of the limits, how can you make any predictions at all? And, um, and so I want to sort of connect with you and see if, if that's kind of capturing your worry and, and then sort of amplify that and then see if we can talk more about that. 100%. You got it. I just want to point out that the, the reason I care about consistency so much is because I talk with a lot of atheists. I'm friends with theists. I'm theists, friends with atheists. And I'm trying to get everybody kind of on board with these arguments on my Discord and social media and so on. And one big hangup that, that seems to happen over and over and over again with atheists is that a lot of these arguments seem to play by different rules. And so you start navigating one and trying to figure out how one works, and you go to another argument, and it seems to work a different way. So we follow your argument, and we kind of understand necessity to mean one thing and the foundation to be like this. But then we start looking at Barnes's argument from fine-tuning, and suddenly we don't have this independent, unlimited thing. We have a, a god that's kind of embedded in, a, in an abductive schema where if something wants X and is powerful enough to produce X, that's a good explanation for there being an X. Um, but if God's say, uh, independent from that schema, and we wouldn't expect that schema to reflect on God necessarily, that argument goes out the window. And so we see this happen with arguments like all over the place, where there's like these subtle differences in how things happen. 
And so all sorts of questions pop up, like, are these proofs talking about the same God? I mean, they'd want to be, most of these authors are Christian, they want to think they're worshiping the same thing and so on. Uh, two, if I'm in the middle of an argument about like some argument and somebody comes in approaching a different argument, they try to jump in on our conversation. If they're assuming implicitly a different set of rules than me and the other person I'm arguing with, things get messy very quickly. And it's these, it's these on the ground kind of worries where I'm trying to facilitate these conversations that frustrate me and want me to just kind of like straighten this out and figure out what's what. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I feel like something that that um, helps a lot is when people can sort of be in a cooperative mode so that it's not like you've got team atheist, team theist, and hey, it looks like the theists are inconsistent with each other. It may be even inconsistent internally in their own mind, you know. Um, but if like the atheists and theists are kind of looking at the same things together and sort of helping each other to go deeper. And I, and I feel like that's something that I, I love about what you guys do at Real Atheology. Um, I actually put in my notes several things. I'm not going to go into them now, but just ways in which you guys are raising the level of discourse in, in really measurable, practical ways that ripple out. And it makes a big difference for everybody because it's not just that you're affecting the people who listen to you guys on the first level. Then you're also affecting everybody that your listeners talk to because you're raising that level of discourse. And I think that is really the way to help weed out these inconsistencies um, between, and, and also, I mean, the different arguments are kind of different experiments, you know, like we're trying to approach reality this way, and then maybe it doesn't, it's not consistent with another experiment, you kind of have to run all the experiments, let them compete, you know, and then see which ones sort of survive scrutiny. I didn't want to cut you off as you were singing our praises, but thank you so much. Another quick clarification, sorry. Um, I just wanted to say that as far as the disagreements go, I don't think I don't think stage one I have too many disagreements with. Like I said, like Eileen Theist, it's not really in my best interest to like um uh discuss like when it comes to like the Humean defense or you know, your 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 discussion of the forest in terms of Hume. I actually agree with your broader point and as far as like the forest need an external explanation and all that stuff. I don't think any of the individual premises of the first argument are are my main worry. And this was actually true when I first started talking about this with my friend and Proust's article was the very first one I read. He goes, okay, so which premise do you deny? I said, ah, none of them. I actually like all of them. Let's get to the gap argument, the, the stage two, and let's use what we learned from the stage two to look back at the stage one premises to see if everything fits. And that's always kind of the way I've done these arguments. I want to make sure I get to the end and then see, see if everything fits together even after like we get through the end of the argument. Because one thing I don't see happen often enough is people kind of like do their stage one. Do we agree? Awesome. We'll go to stage two, and it's kind of like linear. We get to the end, and it stops. Where I think about these arguments kind of in a circle, where the stage one argument should inform the stage two argument, mm -hmm. and the stage two argument should go back and reaffirm the stage one argument. And based on what we've learned from stage two, will that cause us to look at the stage one premises in a different light? Yeah, uh, that's very well put. And I, I do think that there has been a lot of progress um, where – a lot of philosophers, you know, Graham Oppie being one of them, um, but other philosophers, Felipe Leone in my dialogue with him, will grant some kind of necessary foundation, or at least even just some foundation, you know, and maybe we leave open the sort of nature of necessity, and there's different sort of grades of necessity as well, and so we can think about that. So that, that's why actually when I think about the stage one and the stage two, I really do think of stage one as getting to some kind of fundamental layer um, broadly conceived. And that fundamental layer, layer, by the way, could be the universe as a whole. So I'm not even thinking that 
um, stage one requires that the universe be caused by some external device. It could be that the universe as a whole is the sort of fundamental layer or, or the, the sort of pr the whole that's prior to its parts. Um, that's wide open. And then we move into stage two. And that's where I think a lot of the, the very interesting work is being done these days on stage two. And, and I have in my notes just some kind of general principles and considerations that I feel like could serve everybody, like no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your worldview is. If you think fundamental reality is, is a quantum field, or if you think it's a field of awareness, or if you think it's a being or something else, um, I think that there are some general principles that can sort of like serve you with the frame that you're sort of thinking of reality and to kind of fill it in. And, and so Logos and, and the others, Ben as well, can sort of help guide the discussion here. But I, I just want to point just as a kind of summary picture of how I see progress happening in identifying the nature of the foundation. Um, the one side is peeling away, as I just described, we peel away attributes and characteristics that would not be relevantly different from cause explained things. So turtles, snakes, colors, I think. Um, and we could talk about that stage, uh, that project. And then the other project would be to color in to the nature something that would be evidently relevantly different, um, something that would sort of set the foundation apart from cause to explain things. And, and I have some thoughts about that as well, but I wanna just say going back to this sort of worry about anything comes out of the box, I think that worry, the, the, the worry that if you don't fill in any sort of positive characteristic of the foundation, then like you can't have any predictive um, power from that theory. I think that worry comes from merely doing the clearing away part. So you clear away limits. I think, you know, in my, my work has sort of gotten in the popular sphere. It gets kind of simplified into, you know, Josh is clearing away limits. Okay, well, if we clear away limits, then we have an unlimited what? Like we can't say anything about it. Um, and so I think that does lead to that legitimate worry and problem. But can we say more? And that's where I have some thoughts. And, and I want to kind of throw it back to you before sharing my thoughts. But I do have some thoughts about how we might be able to, in a principled way, color in the nature of the foundation. Yeah, that sounds like a really, really good setup. I think I think looking at this from, from like a bird's eye view, I think one way of putting my worry is this. It seems like in order to explain anything about this reality, and I know we don't want contrastive explanations per se, but contrast seems to be a little bit implicit in the argument in the sense that the argument seemed to boil down to like these contingent things have an explanation. Um, so like this plurality of contingent things there are has an explanation. And so my trigger word here is this. And so the thinking I've been I've been settling on for this is something like thisness is explained by thisness. So and, and this like holds true for like the fine-tuning argument, let's say. So this life-preserving universe, permitting universe, I always get that word mixed up. This life-permitting universe is explained by this life-valuing being that can construct the universe. So there's something about this universe explained by this thing that explains the universe. There's like a, a, a this connection uh, between the two things. And so it seems like whatever the foundation is, there should be some thisness about it such that you can like look at that and say, this is explained by this part of the thing that's like doing the, does that make sense? This is a very deep question and you can come back and elaborate a bit. But one thing I, I hear you asking is about 
maybe a problem of, of specificity. Like if, if we get very specific about like what this is so that it can explain particular specific things, then we've kind of maybe even diminished its intrinsic probability because we've gotten very specific. I mean, that's the problem with like the flying spaghetti monster theory of ultimate reality um, is that it's like so specific and also in an arbitrary way as well, which calls for further explanation. So one worry you might have, and, and tell me if, if you can expand on this, is that maybe um, as soon as we get specific about like what this foundation is, as soon as we actually identify what it is, now that very identity, whatever we've we've said it is specifically, um, is first going to increase the complexity of our theory, but then second, it's going to call for further explanation. Why that thing? Why that this rather than something else? Is that kind of the worry you think, or something else? You you hit on it. I didn't even say the second part, and you caught it like immediately. Like you're so brilliant. Like yeah, the idea that. Uh, so first thing, the first the first stage of my worry is just I want to connect the thing doing the explaining with the thing that it is explaining. It doesn't have to be a causal connection. It could just be like some conceptual or abductive or any connection that you want. But then the second worry is exactly as you said, like you predict that like like brilliantly. Yeah, once you if the foundation is too particular, then somebody can always say, you know, why why is the foundation like this and not some other way? And that's that's a paradox that I've been trying to puzzle over for a while actually. All right, we broke the argument right here on your show. This is history being made. Ben, awesome. <laughs> this is this is great. So, um, my three-year-old is screaming in the background, distracting me slightly. Um, so, first, I just want to highlight, you know, the value of trying to get an explanation or filling in, coloring in the nature in a way that's not going to sort of bring back the question, like. If we say, well, why is there something? And we say, well, it's because there's an apple. Okay, why is there an apple? And, and we don't like apples all the way down. So we say at the bottom of this chain of apples, there's a turtle. And we're like, okay, why is there a turtle? And I, I want to just say, I was thinking before our time together, I was thinking about this worry that sometimes people have that when we're thinking about this sort of deep structure of reality and we're trying to put on our mental telescopes to peer into the foundation, how can we like be sure of anything, right? And, and I do think that there should be a kind of epistemic humility here, especially when there's very intelligent people who disagree. Um, but having said that, I also think it is possible to see some things clearly. Um, in fact, I actually think that there are some things that you can see about fundamental reality that are even clearer than about like contingent reality. So like, for example, okay, so I have this cup and I've been drinking out of it and it's been a good drink. Now, you don't really know what's in here. It could be coffee. It could be sparkling water. Uh, it turns out, you know, I'll give you my testimony. It's, it's sparkling water. It's not coffee. Um, but, you know, if you were to guess, you know, you might guess one liquid or another. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be so sure. You know, maybe it could be coffee, you know, and you wouldn't be too surprised. But here I think that you guys aren't unsure about whether fundamental reality is coffee or sparkling water. Um, I suspect that, you're actually quite sure it's not because from both reason and experience, coffee and sparkling water are the kinds of things that wouldn't be fundamental. I mean, it's the wrong kind of thing to produce the rest of reality. You know, and if that's not clear enough, we could say at least that fundamental reality is not a square circle, you know, and that's putting on our logic telescope and zooming all the way to the deep reaches of reality to see some things clearly. And so one of the things that I, I try to do in, in my project is to find tools that can help anybody from sort of any standpoint 
get a little clearer about sort of the deep things. Um, and so, you know, one of the tools I, I mentioned is a kind of clearing away tool. And I think the, the principle here, the seed principle is to explain things as far as you can. So, you know, if, if there's a, a, a turtle shape um, that's posited of fundamental reality, or let's just say, you know, a, um, some informational states of a quantum field, okay, that's posited. Other things being equal, I think it's reasonable to expect that there's going to be some further explanation of those informational states, unless you have some independent reason to think that we've reached bottom. And so this can kind of help us to keep going deeper. Um, now, with respect to specificity, I was thinking that one thing that we could say sort of minimally, without coloring it in with too much detail, is that if fundamental reality doesn't have sort of arbitrary limits or boundaries, like, so for example, let's say that it were a specific shade of blue, or let's say it um, had the fundamental property of having 10 sides. Okay. These would be quantitative properties that I think would call for further explanation. Like why have that many sides rather than more or less? Now, maybe there's some deeper reason why that number of sides is just necessary, but apart from identifying that reason, apart from some sort of flag that says, stop explaining here, I think it's reasonable to expect further explanation. So then one way that we could color this in then is if it's not quantitative at its fundamental level, maybe it's qualitative. We could say it's fundamentally some quality. And then even at this stage, I could maybe leave it open. So an atheist might think, hmm, what would that quality be? Maybe it's some kind of quality of power or quality of, um, of uh, you know, I want to say causal capacity. Um, what, one thing that I've pointed out in my work is that I think that in my view that there's going to be some value entailing quality. Um, so value is a kind of quality that we witness in the world. And a value entailing quality would be something that might entail valuable attributes like um, knowledge or the power to make personal beings or things like this, some kind of resources for making uh, the rest of reality. And so then now I'm, I'm starting to sort of color it in. But now, now you might say, okay, well, if you start getting specific, then we're getting back to that worry that um, that specific quality is going to call for further explanation. But here, I think if we get specific in a way that does flag a relevant difference between cause and explain things, then I think we're going to be in a different situation. And so one of the hypotheses that I've been sort of floating and, and developing and working on is this kind of perfect uh, nature hypothesis, where it seems when I think about it, and I'm just giving you my own autobiography here, I mean, others can have different thoughts on this, but it just sort of strikes me that if the fundamental reality has a, a kind of um, perfect nature, then it would have a sort of qualitative base, non-quantitative, and it would um, then, in virtue of its perfection, be able to predict why it would also have other positive attributes. In a way, it, you might think of it as sort of purely positive. And I was thinking about this again today. I was thinking about this in terms of like a piece of paper. So um, maybe if we say this piece of paper is purely white, that's a very specific hypothesis. And you might think that's very implausible that it'd be purely white because there's like infinitely many ways for the paper to not be purely white. It might be white here and then like blue over here, white here and then red over here, you know, infinitely many alternatives to this theory. But if you take some snapshots of the paper, let's say you don't see all of it. I'll put some of it out of the screen. You take some snapshots and you say, okay, it's white here. It's white here. It's white where we look. And the white here is a metaphor for value and telling properties. If it has these value and telling properties of 
power to produce valuable things. Then you might think sort of maybe as an initial hypothesis, you might expect it to be sort of purely, purely white. Um, that might be sort of a good expectation. Again, other things being equal and, and other things are never equal. So this is just a chip and the total consideration of, of worldview construction. But this, this weighs on me. I mean, so th this is a reason that I would have for sort of coloring in the sort of fundamental reality with a kind of nature that's not quantitative, not arbitrarily limited, but also fills it in with some sort of positive aspects, which now I think will give some predictions. Um, it might not predict with a probability, with even a high probability that the universe unfolds to produce conscious beings like us. But I wouldn't think that it predicts a low probability um, that a universe unfolds to predict uh, to produce conscious beings like us. And, um, and if it doesn't uh, predict a low probability, then we could, we could bring in a kind of fine tuning argument where take a, take an alternative hypothesis where we, we color the fun fundamental reality in a different way, instead of being purely positive and having resources of, of, um, mentality, we say it's fundamentally and purely mindless. Well, then, then you might think, I mean, this would be a longer argument, that the probability that the universe unfolds to produce conscious beings sort of goes down. It's sort of less probable. And again, you know, I don't want to be triumphal here because this would just be sort of one evidential chip that one could weigh. And this would be a way of, of sort of responding to that specificity worry where we're sort of coloring it in in the kind of least arbitrary way that we can um, and in a way that would flag a relevant difference. See, that's the key for me is like, if it's a turtle, that seems to flag an irrelevant difference. That calls for further explanation. But if it has a supreme nature, it seems like, well, that that strikes my mind as a, a relevant difference. And um, maybe there's other ways of filling in that would flag a relevant difference. But I, I do think there's a kind of um, simplicity advantage to sort of coloring it in, in sort of one one way. Um, I was thinking of it in terms of of um, this sort of pure quality, like this pureness. Um, and may, maybe if I want to sort of make this proposal more neutral, you know, um, if somebody's listening to this, watching this from sort of an atheist perspective, and, and you're thinking, okay, may, maybe the particles bottom out in a quantum field, and the quantum field bottoms out in something. And it's like, what's the sort of fundamental nature of that something? It's like, well, maybe maybe initially a good hypothesis is that whatever it is, it doesn't have built within it um, additional arbitrary complexities. It's a kind of like pure, pure something, pure something. And then we can sort of leave open how you want to fill that in. I actually do have a question, Josh. Um, so I'm wondering, as you're talking about this specificity problem and kind of how identifying a speci something specific sort of then, well, that rules out other things and then why that versus the other things. Mm -hmm. Would one possible solution be... Um, say like for an atheist in particular, would one possible solution to that problem be say like some form of modal realism um, where it's like, okay, what if we kind of go the opposite direction? What if in some sense, every possibility is real and foundational at some level um, there just all exists. So everything, every um, possible world is actual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, what do you think of, um, I mean, obviously you would not subscribe to that, but would well, that I, I, I like that as, as a, as a possibility. I mean, because the way that I would think about it is that even if all the possibilities are actual and we have to be careful because there's a way in which we want to avoid the contradiction between sort of the possibility of there being one thing and the possibility of there being not just one thing. Um, 
but we can get careful about this so that we get this kind of modal realism. And then I would just say that there's still going to be, I think, a deeper explanation or principle um, to explain why all those possibilities are real, you know, and it might just be that, you know, the, the theory is just something like um, we, we're shaving off arbitrary limits, right? So we don't want there to just be like a certain number of possibilities real. If, if, if any are real, they're just all real. And so in our theory, we have a kind of simple account of why reality sort of, in a sense, spawns all possibilities. Yeah, and you know, there are sort of theistic models that yeah. um, allow for that. In fact, even um, theists have argued for that as a model. Could, could that be like the what you were talking about with just the pure something? Like, could we be just talking about pure possibility in some sense um, in all? Uh, does that mean like pure possibility is the most fundamental thing? And mm -hmm. in some sense, within each possibility, it's real from that perspective. I don't know if I'm making any sense about no, that. No, it, it is totally making sense. It's, I'm I'm pondering it, actually. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm, or, I'm organizing it in my mind right here. Um, and, and I would like to just ponder it. For a while but um but my initial thought it would be that well my, my question and this is what i was pondering is um you know maybe you predict the sort of moral lance uh, the modal landscape by this kind of pure possibility principle um but sort of in the land of conceivability i can conceive of modal landscapes that include all possibilities where those possibilities don't actually include conscious beings I've just been, I've been pondering this so much lately because I've been working on this book on consciousness. And I have to tell you, if I didn't know better, I would think conscious beings are just impossible, right? I mean, so this would not be in the modal landscape. And so it, it's like, it's not just all possibilities. It, it's, it's also the very character of what is possible. Um, and, and it strikes me that just pure possibility won't predict or explain the particular character of what is possible, it seems to me. So we've been going for about an hour now, um, and but before we wrap it up, I wanted to give Lotus, uh, Logos an opportunity to kind of wrap up some of his thoughts and um, what he thinks um, some really good takeaways from this conversation are. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I can't believe an hour has passed by already. It was like a blink of an eye. I was having so much fun. <laughs> Wild, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I've barely scratched the surface of all the things I wanted to ask and talk about. But um, so let's see. So some takeaways from me are the, 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 the things that I was worried about are worries. So that's good. You know, I, one of the things I was worried about are, you know, here are some things I'm worried about, Dr. Rasmussen. What do you think? And Rasmussen's like, oh. This is first year philosophy stuff. What are you talking about, kid? <laughs> They're <laughs> real legitimate worries and important questions to, to ask. And you no longer have those worries. There's ways of answering them. What do you think? Well, so here's what I want to go into next. It, it, okay. You're probably going to hate me for this because here's a takeaway from this, but it might lead into their conversation. So we're just going to see what happens. Um, I was talking with my cousin about this the other day on the phone. And my cousin's a Christian and I'm a theist, but I'm not a Christian. So we, we have interesting conversations about things. I was actually talking about my worry to him about this, and he has the same worry, that if you make God too unlimited, you lose a lot in Christian theology. And so we were both just kind of brainstorming. I forgot who brought it up first, him or myself, but he goes, well, okay, what about the son in Christian theology? So you've got the father who seems to be like this, this causal like grounding of all the stuff, and the father begets the son. And in Christian theology, the son kind of comes down to rule the earth. And so there's some symbolism there that there's this aspect of the father called the son that is kind of associated with the way that things are 
and and God's final sovereignty over this way that these things are. I said, huh, that's really, really interesting because now God has these dual aspects. There's a necessary foundational aspect of God, but there's also this other more limited part of God as the Trinity. And man, I'm not even going to begin to talk about the Trinity because I will totally screw that up. Um, But that was useful to me. So what if the necessary thing itself does not cause all all these interactions because that could produce a Pandora's box problem. But what if in its perfection, there are some brute, um, there are some brute manifestations of its value. So pure value, you're speaking to somebody who's got a graduate degree in economics, right? Value. There are so many ways value can manifest and say consumer behavior, ethics, and so on. So how do you take pure value and manifest it toward a particular end? Well, maybe there are these archetypes like the sun in Christianity that the that the foundation leans on to be the expression of these values toward the particular ends. And so if you have this kind of distinction, things start making sense. And so now we start kind of like going haywire, just like speculating and talking, having a good time on the phone about this. But what do you think about that? What do you think about this dual aspect nature that I think gives Christianity some kind of model advantage here, where as part of this necessary thing being mysterious, it's got this fundamental rule where, you know, God cares about this world theologically through the sun. So I would sort of generalize. I love, I love that question because I think it points to a general problem in philosophy and just in sort of the questions human beings ask across cultures, which is, how do you sort of explain diversity in terms of unity? Um, you know, you have in the Upanishads, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva as being like three aspects, while Brahma being like source, and then you have the sustainer and the, the sort of destroyer of cycles. And in in Hindu, and this is not my area by any means, but from what my reading and from what I've um, seen is that there's this idea that the sort of original reality can have different forms or different aspects, as, as you put it. Um, you know, so we have also a Trinitarian concept uh, where you have an original reality that has different forms. Um, or, you know, on certain versions of naturalism, you would have an original reality that manifests in different forms. And so I think really, because I'm, I'm really trying to broaden this because I think everybody can sort of get on board here and think about this general question of unity and diversity. Um, and, and one of the tools that I feel like I want to almost like take this tool out of the argument because arguments kind of turn into the sort of like, you know, teams against teams and people are sort of competing for their theory of the world. But if instead we just sort of take this tool out of the argument and hand it to everybody, like use this tool, like just think about this. And this is the tool of shaving off those arbitrary unexplained limits in the fundamental layer of the fundamental description of reality, because then what you have is that any kind of diversity is going to be explained in terms of your most fundamental description. And I mean, I do think this is what sort of the classic uh, Christian Trinitarian view has always been, is um, this sort of idea of one fundamental substance that manifests, and, and you know, there's different accounts of how this works, um, but in, in different personas, in a plurality of personas, where, they're, where the persona of the Son and the Spirit aren't, fundamental, uh, but in, are in some ways like derivative from the original source, from Brahma, if we could use that language, from source consciousness. And, um, you know, people tend to describe these things from the windows of their own culture. But if we sort of just think about this afresh, you know, with the tools of careful thinking, 
and analytic philosophy and just analysis, I do think that we can make some progress by seeking the simplest, least arbitrary, ultimate explanation of things. And so then that will mean that any kind of diversity, at least as a, a, as a starting point, is going to have some deeper explanation. Uh, you know, again, unless you have some reason to think that there's there's no deeper explanation here. You know, this is the complexity at rock bottom and there's no further explanation, then that's fine. That's good, actually, because then you have a way of motivating um, a, a, a stopping that explanatory regress. So I, I'm, I know this doesn't answer all your questions there, Logos, but I think it does touch on hopefully the sort of structure of the kind of question you're asking. Okay, yeah. So I, I think I think one of the main takeaways from this I think you kind of agreed with your discussion about Brahma and multiple aspects and stuff, is that there's this weird mystery, I think, at the bottom of everybody's worldview, Christian, atheist, so on. I even talked to some of my, uh, some of my atheist friends about this, right? Where, I mean, let's, let's, let's take the atheistic lens for a second here. Let's, let's get atheism or let's get theism out of the hot seat for a second. Let's, let's look at like naturalist land for a second. So there's some fundamental aspect to reality, say Oppie's initial state. Now, here's something I've always wondered about Oppie's initial state. I'd love to talk to Oppie sometime about this, right? So it seems to me that I don't think Oppie is committed to some sort of like hard necessitarianism where there's this initial state and it folds the way it has to unfold and so on. Oppie describes the possibilities every time I've heard of him as something like this, right? Every time time moves forward, there are possible branching things that could happen due to chance or some other mechanism. Now, if you're at the initial state, there's no time. No time's occurred yet, so there's no branching that's occurred yet. But yet, I think Oppie would like to say that there are possible first events, for lack of a better word, that could kind of bloom out of the initial state. And so he has kind of like a bigger degree of possibility without time. And so he has this necessary foundation for reality called the initial state. But he also has these possibilities that reality blossoms into from there. But because there's only one world we experience, I think Oppie too is going to have to have some thing he kind of injects into his model that's kind of like a limiter, right? And of all the ways the necessary state could blossom, here's the thing we're experiencing. And so if we if we have like model symmetry here, uh, whatever the necessary foundation is, let's say the father, for lack of a better word, or Brahma, um, there's like Oppie's initial state. And there's, let's say, let's say the theistic one has like value, it's like its core thing, and Oppie might have something more simple in his terms. And there's going to be some kind of a limiter from there that we have to use as an intermediary. So for you know, the theist view, you could use the sun as an archetype or Shiva or something like that. And then for Oppies, I don't know what that limiter would be, but it seems like there's going to be one given the one reality that we're experiencing as kind of time marches on. And so taking a, a tool out of Oppies book here and just using model symmetry, it seems like this is something everybody's going to have to grapple with is the dual aspect nature of whatever the foundation is, where it's going to be flexible to allow a lot of things. Um, but it's got to have something in it that kind of like limits things to what actually is. What do you think about that? I'm glad you're saying this because I think in the popular spheres, I've noticed sometimes maybe it feels a little bit more like a competition. I, I, know, I recently came across a kind of Twitter exchange where there was this kind of Trinity objection to Rasmussen's argument from arbitrary limits and then a response, but that response doesn't work. Well, it was like the reason it doesn't work is because it didn't remove a naturalist from giving a parallel response. And I want to say, yeah, that <laughs> that's not my goal, right? Like, um, anybody from any worldview can think about how to explain um, diversity in a way that shaves off 
as many arbitrary boundaries and complexities as as is consistent with their worldview and their and their data. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I would say where I'm I'm seeing a certain advantage in having a kind of value first um, worldview is that it does to me seem like there are independent reasons to think that fundamental reality has value in telling properties, um, properties that can be described in terms of its resources to produce the kind of world that, that we inhabit. And so then when I'm sort of simplifying and shaving off the arbitrary limits of a value um, entailing fundamental reality, then I arrive at a kind of purely positive fundamental nature. But even that, I, I want to just say, as I was sort of thinking about our time together and maybe preparing my mind for it, I kind of felt um, the sort of inner intuition to kind of leave things right there and not kind of press things beyond this idea of a kind of purely qualitative fundamental aspect and just even kind of invite people to think about like how you might unpack that in the ways that would make the most sense to you. Um, I think there's just a lot of good work here that can still be done. I mean, we are at the edge of human inquiry. We're at the edge, guys. And I, and I feel like there's something about like YouTube that allows people to see each other's faces that maybe allow people to have a little more empathy across the divides of the debates <laughs> where atheists and theists who might otherwise be a little bit like, I don't know, feeling like we're not understanding each other, maybe a little bit irritated at each other. We actually come together as, as teammates to get a wider vision together. And, and I think we can do that. I mean, I, I think sometimes we forget our place in history because we're thinking about some of these timeless debates and everything feels so timeless, but like we are at the edge. <laughs> I, you know, it doesn't depend on your theory of time. You don't have to be a, uh, an atheist or a presentist or something to appreciate this idea that we're at the edge together of human history. And I think there's a lot of progress that can come forward by thinking about these things together. So Logos, I, I, that's why I really appreciate how you put that in terms of the sort of parallel questions and problems that people would face with respect to explaining the, the diversity. Awesome. Okay. So let me look through here because some of the stuff we've gone a lot out of order, which is good. I expected it. Like I told people when I put this outline up, like conversations just do what they do and we'll touch on what we touch on. Uh, let's talk about brute facts. What do you think about brute facts? So a brute fact would be a fact that has no explanation. Um, but to understand what that means to have no explanation, we maybe need to get clear on what kind of explanation we're talking about. Uh, you know, if, if we're thinking of a sort of contrastic, a contrastive explanation, you know, why did I just raise this hand, you know, or not this hand? Uh, you know, if we say that we don't have a contrastive explanation of that, maybe I had some desire to raise one of my hands first. And that desire generated a certain probability that I would, you know, go with this hand first, um, but it wasn't deterministic. So we say we don't have a, a contrastive explanation. So it's brute relative to a contrastive explanation, but I wouldn't say it's brute relative to any explanation. Now you want to know, well, do I think there are any brute facts? And the way that I've been thinking about this recently is that if you think of facts as propositional structures, so there's the fact that two plus two equals four, the fact, you know, the, the, that two plus two equals four is a kind of propositional structure. Um, then what I would say is that I've come, my, my current working model is that those propositional structures actually have underpinnings in terms of non-propositional structures, ultimately. 
So, so the foundational reality is not propositional, um, but is substance or some subject of attributes. Um, so now if we're just thinking about facts that have a propositional structure, explaining other facts that have a propositional structure, then I would say that um, I like the sort of principle that when in doubt, assume there's an explanation. Um, if there is a fact that has no further explanation, then like I said, I think there's going to be a relevant uh, reason why I would have no explanation. And then that fact would be brute. So some philosophers will say that, well, maybe the fact that uh, you know, God exists or something is like self-explaining. Uh, Philip Goff was was suggesting this idea to me on a on a little conversation we had. Um, and maybe there's some way of understanding self-explanation so that that can make sense. But in my own vocabulary, that sort of self-explanation just violates kind of how I think of explanation. I don't think of explanation as sort of able to, to be symmetric like that. I think it's sort of anti-symmetric. So you can't have X literally explains X. So what that means is that if there's a kind of first level of reality with the first facts of that level, um, then those first facts would be would be brute in that sense. They, they would have no further explanation. So in that way, I want to say quite eagerly, like I think every worldview is going to bottom out in some sort of brute um, brute facts, um, at least given my own sort of thinking of what explains what. Um, and so then the question is, and the whole project is, and what we've already talked about is, okay, well then what would be sort of the best account of the kinds of things that would be brute, that would be an exception? Uh, what, what is a way of describing the foundational layer of reality? So it makes sense that those facts are brute. And that's where I say, okay, well, we can clear away the, the coffee hypothesis, the turtle hypothesis. We can maybe color it in with the supreme being hypothesis, or we can explore other options there. Um, but yeah, so that's how I'm thinking about it. And so I would say that there are brute facts in that, in that sense. Uh, you know, if, if you say, well, you know, it, it's not brute because it's explained by its necessity. I actually don't think that's going to work um, because you can take the total of the necessary facts. And then at least if we're looking for external explanations, there's going to be nothing external to that. And <laughs> so I do think there's a way in which, and then we get into weird paradoxes if we sort of package all the facts because then you get facts that include themselves, and I want to stay away from those. Those lead to, to problems. Um, so in the end, I do think that there are some facts at, at the base of reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. So something I was thinking about this, I really liked how you said that um, bruteness is associated with contrast, because that's also what I think. So two places that I see bruteness would be randomness in the sense that let's say you're playing a board game and you're, you're playing Monopoly and you shake your two dice and you roll them and you know you, you get a six or something and land on your, your friend's boardwalk and you think, darn it, why did I land on my friend's boardwalk and have all the other things I could have rolled? Well, there's not going to be this extra clarifying explanation because that's that's the nature of randomness, right? Randomness is just telling you you're brutally going to get what the dice gives you. And that I think is like pure contrast, right? That's that's what randomness is. It's like pure contrast according to some statistical distribution to give us some structure. Um, so that, that's the extreme end of it. And you also mentioned like free choices, like, well, maybe agents just do things because they are the way they are. Um, now, now, here's something I was thinking about. I read this interesting paper by a guy named uh, Disgupta, and he was talking about a PSR that was in terms of autonomous facts. Have you heard about this? You're uh, muted, Josh. Oh, sorry. The autonomous ones don't admit of a further explanation. Is that – remind so, me how that one works. Yeah, so autonomous facts are kind of like 
the ground level of this is just how things are kind of facts. So let's suppose we found like a unifying theory of everything in physics. And so anything we want to explain in our world, we can ultimately cash out in these just like, this is just the way it is facts, right? The world's just like this. And so here's how these things go. Um, so one thing I was thinking about, because I think this is like really, really useful vocabulary to have, because it, it feels like when I have these conversations, I was, I was always itching for something to talk about these kinds of entities. And I'm really glad yeah. that vocabulary is there. I, I, I remember it now. Actually, I, I, I remember peer reviewing that paper. In early really? Yeah. Wow. I do remember it. I, I was like, autonomous, what was that? Yeah, it's the way you described it. Um, and these are, they don't admit of a further explanation. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the way I want to think about it, I think this is really helpful. Um, when you get when you get to the rock bottom of how a world is in terms of like its laws of physics, its mechanistic properties, and like everything else you can say about the world, when you when you reach the level of autonomous facts, you're kind of like done. But there's still an itchy question you might have. Something like, but why am I in a world that has these autonomous facts rather than those autonomous facts? And so it got me thinking, like. At root, so, so something that's always nagged me about this argument, this question, is at root, something that seems to be in this argument implicitly is this question of, why am I in this possible world rather than this other possible world? And my knee-jerk kind of like response is, but if you were in the other world, you just ask why you weren't in this one, right? This is kind of like a, a purely contrastive question. And if anything's a candidate for a brute fact, it seems like this might be the candidate for a brute fact. And to, to clarify that further, so like when I was thinking about your uh, your, your forced discussion with Philo and Nihilo, um, and you know, Philo says like, uh, why trees? Why not vines or turtles? Uh, my thought was, I mean, what if there is a world where you've got like all vines or all turtles or something? And they were in that world having the same conversations that why not trees instead? You could have like, it's like the Spider-Man meme where all the Spider-Men are pointing at each other. It's like everybody in the possible world where this infinite history is happening is kind of like pointing at the other one. There's, there's something like so rawly, perfectly contrastive about like that essence that's just had me really thinking over the last few weeks. And it's, it's got me thinking something like this. Like, let's suppose... Um, whether you're a theist or an atheist, you have like some some base level view about the world and you have like this necessary foundation, initial state, whatever you want to say. And you have this limiter where, you know, out of all the ways things could be, we're limited to experiencing this one reality by some mechanism, principle, or so on. Maybe, possibly, there are other ones. We could be like agnostic. We don't have to go like full motor realist. We could say like, maybe there are some other possibilities out there if there's this one. And if we were in those possibilities, we'd ask the same kinds of questions. And so what's got me thinking is, um, like, the limiter and the kind of world we experience, it seems like – I'm trying to figure out the best way to word this because there's a lot tangled up in here. But you've got, like, the necessary foundation. We talked about, like, the dual aspect to that that thing, kind of like the son to the father or the Shiva to the Brahma or the, the Api's limiter to Api's initial state. It seems like that limiter – that's producing the reality that that kind of like admits the autonomous facts that kind of like build the world we experience. It seems like that base level of the way things are, that's where the brute facts are going to be. Because if you try to dig any deeper, you're just kind of asking the contrastive question about why this world and not the other one. What do you think about that? That, um, that sounds good. Um, I was just thinking just uh, maybe this is just kind of a side little clarification point um, that if you think of contingent things as things that could be otherwise, 
in a way you're giving kind of a contrastive characterization of the contingent thing. And, um, and th this is not going to relate to your question, but you just reminded me of this point, which is that you can have something that's contrastive in that sense, even if it doesn't have a contrastive explanation. Uh, in other words, there's not an explanation of why this thing rather than another thing. Um, but there is an explanation of its existence and it's a contrastive thing and it sort of calls for explanation. It, it's like in virtue of its contrastive nature, it calls for explanation, even if the explanation doesn't have to be contrastive in its nature, if that makes sense. I, I just felt like that distinction will, will be helpful, hopefully for somebody um, watching this. Uh, but then the other thing that you're pointing to is sort of this feeling like, like um, once we reach a sort of base facts, um, we're kind of wondering like, well, why are those the base facts, you know? And then if there were another possible world where there were, there, there were different base facts, well then, you know, they could wonder like, why are those the base facts? And I mean, I actually think that that question is a very insightful question, which I, I think even kind of points to a reason. I think the base facts aren't just contingent um, because it would sort of invite that question, you know, why these uh, base facts? Um, well, maybe because there couldn't be any other base facts. Um, now, I don't think the necessity of base facts is going to answer every question because even if they are necessary, we could. there's still a question about like what kind of facts would be the necessary ones. I mean, if it turned out that, you know, the base of reality just is like, you know, the, the turtle example, right? Like it's necessarily a turtle. Um, and, and by the way, when you have these forms of the fine tuning argument where it's, they say, you know, it's, it's chance, design or necessity, that sort of invites the reply that, well, maybe it's just necessity. Um, but if, but the other forms of the fine tuning arguments, let's say Robin Collins's form, where it's just epistemic Bayesian probability, the sort of metaphysical necessity kind of goes away because really what's at stake is, you know, what's expected, right? And now we can ask that about the, the base necessary facts, like some necessary facts, like facts about a turtle, don't, we wouldn't expect those to be the necessary facts. And so this is, I think, a way of actually getting deeper in to the explanation of ultimate reality. It's like, okay, the, the autonomous facts, the, the, these things admit of no further explanation. Well, if they were contingent, it seems like yeah, they probably would admit of a further explanation. So we take away contingency. If they're necessary, but shaped like a turtle, well, then they probably would admit of a further explanation in terms of maybe more fundamental aspects of the necessary turtle. So once we get to the base of the base of the base, I think we're gonna need sort of the relevant, um, the relevant kind of autonomous facts. And, and I really think that's kind of what you're pointing to here is sort of a reason to keep pursuing that explanation. Now, there's something else you're pointing to, and you might want to come back on this um, in terms of like, well, maybe maybe there's this feeling here, like maybe we shouldn't be surprised that there are these facts in our world, because after all, no matter what world we're in, we're going to have facts that are sort of like weird. Um, and like everybody's stuck with brute facts, right? And and I guess my thought is like, well, maybe in some on some level, but like let's try to reduce the weirdness as much as we can. Like this is like a principle of worldview development. Reduce the weirdness, okay? That's one of the tools you can use. Reduce the weirdness as much as you can. Um, you know, and if you're stuck with some weirdness, and if everybody in every possible weird world is stuck with some weirdness, so be it. But I do think there are ways of reducing at least some aspects of weirdness. Again, by shaving off uh, the the contingency from the base of reality. So those are some of my thoughts about that.
Okay, yeah, those are those are some pretty good thoughts. I, I think the yeah the shaving off the weirdness thing is going to be a, a big part of the conversation. And going into basically my own theistic leanings at this point, um, I've had some experiences which which you know lend me toward theism. And with that, the idea that there's some intentional thing that kind of acts as a limiter to make the world the way it is. And that could be a way of, of limiting some weirdness if you want to take a theistic position. Um, but trying to trying to bring that out in a discussion is is kind of interesting because it seems I, I guess the, the the big question is always going to be like model symmetry. It seems like whatever artifact one model uses to try to like shave away some weirdness, add some clarity or something, somebody else can always go, oh, that's actually very very useful. I'm going to add something like that to my model, except and they're going to remove something. And it seems like there's going to be this kind of like tit for tat thing where, where where both sides try to like add the same kinds of of functional mechanisms to their model but omit stuff to uh make one model say simpler or less ontologically um extravagant than its competitor or something like that so trying to trying to convey the idea that maybe this universe was intended in some way seems a little bit difficult because as you noted with consciousness in your own book, consciousness is a very, very weighty concept, the very idea of consciousness, intent, and so on. And so instead of trying to go the direct route and thinking about it like that, what if we th thought about it like this? I wonder if there's a price to be paid for trying to constantly simplify rather than kind of bulk up models, right? Because the more we kind of like stand our ground and like add stuff to models and saying this, this, and this are going to do a bunch of explanatory work. But if the incentives are always just to shave off because the only, let's say, economic incentives for a, a preferable model are just ones that have fewer of the commitments, I, I'm trying to articulate an idea that maybe something would be lost if you shave off too much from models. I'm having an, a, a difficult time articulating what I, what I mean. Um, are you kind of getting it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right with you. Um, and I think that I had kind of three thoughts as, as you were um, describing this sort of parallel. So first, I, th I think this sort of mirroring strategy, Alex Malpaz does this brilliantly. We've had some conversations where he, he finds sort of a mirror, like, so you're citing these values for this worldview. Well, here's a worldview that mirrors those same values. And I think that's a wonderful instrument for worldview construction. So it's like, here's a way of simplifying reality. Oh, here's another way where we get the same degree of simplicity. Um, so that, that was my first thought, just to point to the value of this sort of mirroring strategy. The second observation that I've had is that, in my experience, conversations that are at this level, um, where people are thinking carefully from different sides and different perspectives, they they feel like they kind of tend to converge, actually, uh, where people are making progress. This certainly happened, I felt, in my conversation with Felipe Leon in our dialogue book, where there were a lot of interesting points of convergence. I think part of the appearance of difference maybe was filled in with certain vocabulary differences. But then once we really got to the root concepts of those vocabularies, it was like, okay, by the end of the book, I'm saying, okay, natural, liberal naturalism, the way you're defining that, that sounds good. Um, and, and, and he's saying, okay, some kind of proto or fundamental consciousness at the foundation of reality, or, or at least, I mean, he, he allowed some sort of qualitative aspect that uh, could be fundamental. He's like, okay, that sounds good. Uh, some kind of necessity at the foundation of reality. That sounds good. And so it's like, we're actually converging on a lot of interesting properties. 
and maybe you know philosophers we sort of like to advertise our differences and maybe maybe there's that place for that because it increases the level of interest and intrigue so we can sort of fight about the differences but i do think that when we use that sort of method of mirroring um, it does lead to progress significant progress and um and so it doesn't have to just be sort of this infinite stalemate actually and where there are continual stalemates that's helpful too because that can help both sides realize okay well maybe i don't like win on this score because it can be mirrored and and i think that's a very important thing to sort of look for um so yeah i think the mirroring is, is a valuable tool i don't think it has to lead to infinite debates i think progress can be made um using the mirror like not every theory is a mirror i mean to use uh an example that everybody watching will agree with the flying spaghetti monster it's hard to mirror it's hard for the flying spaghetti monster theorist to mirror the virtues of explanatory depth and uh, intrinsic simplicity of your base theory uh, because they don't have that right uh, in addition to you know fit with uh, data um, and these things well i guess it's supposed to be invisible and so you don't really have <laughs> any sort of clear counter evidence but it's you know, w once you define it in a way that makes it sort of like coherent, it loses on other ground. And so not every theory I think is mirrored. And let me just say, because I threw out the flying spaghetti monster, I think that there are theistic theories that we can shave away once we start to think, apply these principles. Um, you know, I, I think there are theories of the sort of diversity of God as being fundamental to the nature of God that are less good than theories that actually reduce the fundamental simplicity of the fundamental nature of God. And that's a great thing. I was actually thinking, I want to just say one more thing, if I may, on this point, because I think there is a certain maybe resistance to certain conceptions of, of reality having maybe a, uh, the, sort, the sort of resources of a, of a supreme being that come from, let's say, contingent artifacts of cultures that sort of pro project the contingencies of those cultures into the nature of fundamental reality. I was thinking earlier today of, of like thinking of God as like a man, you know, like masculine psychology and maybe man in other ways, right? And it's like, well, the problem is, is that that posits within fundamental reality, sort of an arbitrary psychology that would call for further explanation, like why male and not female? Um, if you say, oh, well, male psychology is the greatest possible type of psychology. Well, that's dangerous ground. And uh, in any case, it would still call for further explanation. So I don't think that's going to be the best model. Um, you know, I mean, there's a reason why there's biblical data about God being called a mother hen. You know, it's like they kind of maybe shake you out of like one way of thinking of God. Um, but we we tend to project our culture and our concepts into to reality and to our concept of God if we believe in God. And I think that that does lead to certain kind of maybe arbitrary characterizations of God. And then this tool of shaving off arbitrary complexities and limits can help shave off uh, certain theories then of certain theistic theories. And, and I don't think that's just, you can just mirror that. I really just don't think you can. I think that you get to a place where, uh, you know, if you try to mirror that, you're going to realize, hey, you know what, you're right. You've got a better theory over there. Um, and so that's progress. Well, I hate to say it, but it's about time to start wrapping up. Thank you so much, you guys. Uh, it's been a very enlightening and rich exchange very nice to have such a cordial conversation between a theist and a skeptic um if you guys have the time could we maybe get some of your concluding thoughts on the discussion 
We'll start with Logos, and then we'll close with Professor Rasmussen. It's been a lot of fun. This is like bucket list material, basically. Talk to a PhD philosopher. I never thought I'd be, you know, doing that in my lifetime. It's been like an amazing experience. Um, I think that it's been helpful, knowing that a lot of the concerns I've had for these arguments uh, are shared uh, by a doctor in philosophy who engages with them. Um, I, I guess from my experience, you know, reading them, reading the newest version of the arguments that come out and stuff, you see the arguments, you see the objections, and you see the same ones kind of dealt with over and over again. And it gets kind of frustrating because you're like, man, I have all these real big issues with these arguments, and nobody ever seems to bring them up. Am I absolutely crazy? Am I going crazy? Are these not a thing? So I don't know. It's just really, really good to uh, be able to talk to somebody about them that uh, that knows and says, no, these are actually interesting objections. I think in the long run, it'd be really, really fun to see more of this stuff in print. So like a section on a contingency argument that's just like, hey, let's talk about the trade-off between you know making a thing too simple and making it not explain the thing we wanted to explain versus too complicated so it does explain it, but maybe it now needs an explanation. Like a whole like discussion on that would just be like super, super eye-opening because I've tried to talk to a lot of people about these arguments, and this is like one of the big things that ends up going, but it's not one of the things that I see philosophers talk a lot about. And so it's one of these weird situations where the conversations I have on the ground about this stuff doesn't quite match what I'm reading in the literature. And so that would be one major takeaway. And yeah, I think that's about it. Otherwise, it's been like a super good conversation. Yeah, thank you. Logos, uh, I, I feel like a value that you bring is to sort of translate that, the depths of the literature into the, the popular sphere. Uh, Felipe, Leon, and I, I mean, we do talk about some of these trade-offs in our dialogue, um, but you know, we don't explore all the edges and we don't explore all the questions that you've been raising, which are just wonderful, wonderful questions for advancing the, the discussion here. And I guess my final thought was, I was just like look, looking at your names, I was like, these are just my favorite people. When I see you guys on, online, it's like, oh, it's bang. Both Bens, Ben Bavar and Benjamin Blake. It is Ben Bavar, right? That that's the right Ben, the Ben B. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Like and Ryan. Oh man, it's just wonderful, wonderful to be with you guys here, and I'm just so glad and honored that we could have this conversation. I, I feel like I was kind of itching to kind of bring some of these these things kind of into the the public. Some of these deeper questions that Logos is is pointing us to. Because I do think they get lost in the popular um, back and forths. And just to kind of bring out some of these tools, I, I feel like it's just, I'm, I'm just so glad that I could do that with you guys. So thank you so much. You just made me feel really, really good. Yeah, it's, a, it's an honor to have both of you. Well, you uh, should feel great. intrinsically valuable beings, right? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on today and uh, discussing arguments from contingency with us and a bunch of um, really neat concepts um, to hopefully help people tackle the question of not only God's existence, but also why there's something rather than nothing. And um, yes, cheers to more great discussions in the future. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode of Real Atheology, why not make it official and give it a like? Subscribe to our channel so that you can continue to be philosophically nourished and do philosophy with us by putting your most profound thoughts in the comments. Make sure to follow and interact with us on Twitter and the other social media places. And if you're feeling especially generous, consider supporting us financially via Patreon. All contributions are immensely helpful. The RA team maximally appreciates its current patrons 
With special thanks to Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kashi Samara-Wira, Kim Bachkowski, and Brandon McCleary. Thanks everyone, and we'll see you next time.